my mom had gave me this little glass house and she said this one day this will be real and now it finally is 2103 west volunteer way springfield missouri daddy i understand that we haven't had a chance to get close in a long time coming my whole life episode. Let's um, address the elephant in the room. I hope all of my listeners are safe, healthy, and doing well during this difficult time across the world. I pray this virus will pass and our lives will go back to normal very soon. I feel so deeply devastated for all the jobs and businesses and communities and the economy that has been affected by this outbreak. I'm no expert. I won't go into too much more, but stay home, wash your hands, distance yourself from social gatherings as difficult as it may be just do what you can to get through this and everyone can get healthy and stop the spread in times like these unity is key so please love your neighbor be kind don't panic oh and don't touch your face phew now that that is out of the way i thought i wouldn't survive to record this episode while everyone is worried about catching the coronavirus um the stomach flu has hit my house the end of last week and over the weekend so my house now radiates the welcoming smell of bleach i have lost count on how many days i've stayed inside and my hair looks like a possum might be living in my messy bun I want to give a quick shout out before I get into this week's case. There is a new true crime podcast that deserves some love. She has been in contact with me from the very beginning and I have enjoyed giving her some tips and tricks. She doesn't need any help, by the way. She is a natural. I listened to her first episode yesterday while bleaching my house for the second time, top to bottom, and I was so proud of her. I am going to read you a little bit about the host, Jessica, in her own words. I have always wanted to start a true crime podcast, but never knew what I would do. Until I met A. She's the woman who, in the story of Rita, went to court and fought and won her assault, attempted murder against Juan Jose Fajaro. Her story is her own, but when I look into Rita and try to put her name into the podcast search bar, there was nothing. It was heartbreaking, almost like she fell through the cracks, and I wanted her story to be heard. I needed it to be heard. So I started out just wanting to tell Rita's story, and then I met Randy and Denise. Their son went missing in 2016, and they still don't have any answers. It really hit me, watching the investigation of Gannon unfold, as to why the people I know of hadn't been sought out after as much as poor little Gannon. I want everyone to know about these people too. I have also met a few wonderful people who have taken their time and dedicated it to helping those families, even when they seem like they are being dismissed. 
Their dedication and drive to help these families is inspiring, and I hope to one day make as much of a difference. I'm just a mom who is fascinated by creepy shit. You guys, I think we just met our new best friend. She totally fits in with us. You can listen to Jessica's podcast, Missing at 5280 on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Go give her a rating and tell her pocket full of crime sent you. Best of luck to you, Jessica, and keep up the amazing work. Let's get into this week's case. You are listening to Mother of All Murders. strike a chord with you. This is by no means a small, unheard of case. This has been turned into books, films, documentaries, Netflix shows. Dr. Phil has even gotten involved. You know it's a juicy peach when Dr. Phil gets called. Claudine Dee Dee Blankard, born May 3rd, 1967 in Chuck Bay, Louisiana. She was one of six children born to Claude Anthony Petrie Sr. and Emma Louise Gisclair. During Claudine's childhood, her family recalled she occasionally commit petty theft, almost as a way to retaliate when things didn't go her way. In 1997, she was even accused by her own family she might have killed her own mother by denying her food. Dee Dee was 24 when she became pregnant by 17-year-old Rod Blankard. The two welcomed a baby girl named Gypsy Rose because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy and Rod liked Guns N' Roses, so it just kind of fit. It was shortly after Gypsy's birthday in July 1991, the couple separated. Rod had said he got married for the wrong reasons and left. Despite Dee Dee's efforts, he did not return, so... So Dee Dee packed up newborn Gypsy Rose to live with her family back in Louisiana. Rad remained in Gypsy's life up until this point and recalled she was only three months old when her mother Dee Dee was convinced she suffered from sleep apnea. Dee Dee began taking Gypsy to hospitals with repeated overnight stays, hooked up to sleep monitors and countless tests, all revealing no signs of the condition. That was only the beginning. Dee Dee was convinced Gypsy had a wide range of health issues attributed to unspecified chromosomal disorder. When Gypsy was around seven or eight years old, she recalls taking a motorcycle ride with her grandfather when the two were involved in a very minor accident. Gypsy suffered an abrasion on her knee, but Dee Dee insisted this was an injury that would require several surgeries to treat properly. That day on, she was forced to use a walker, then ultimately confined to a wheelchair. Gypsy deep down knew she was healthy enough to walk on her own. Gypsy stopped attending school after the second grade, and maybe even as early as kindergarten, sources claim. She was then homeschooled by her mother. Supposedly, her illness was just too severe to attend public school. Gypsy somehow managed to learn to read 
on her own by reading the Harry Potter books. I don't know why, but I just had a flashback of the movie Matilda, where she went to the library all the time, and yeah. Anyways, Gypsy's father, Rod, did go on to remarry, and Dee Dee and Gypsy moved in with Dee Dee's father and stepmother. This is when claims surfaced that Dee Dee would poison her stepmother's food with Roundup weed killer, causing her to be very ill during that period of time. Dee Dee was arrested for several minor charges during this period of time, including writing bad checks. Dee Dee's father and stepmother would regularly confront her about her care for Gypsy, as well as expressing suspicion of her role in her stepmother's declining health. Dee Dee packed up with Gypsy and left for Slido. The stepmother's health seemed to return to normal shortly after her departure. Once in Slidell, Dee Dee and Gypsy lived in public housing. Their bills were paid for by government assistance due to Gypsy's disabilities, as well as child support from Rod. The majority of medical visits were to specialists at Tulane Medical Center and Children's Hospital of New Orleans. At this point, Gypsy's illness and disabilities list now included vision and hearing impairment. A muscle biopsy found no signs of muscular dystrophy, but Dee Dee insisted otherwise. She also told doctors that Gypsy had seizures every few months, which sparked them to prescribe her an anti-seizure medication, all without proper testing or verification. This makes me really mad because... This certain medication for seizures made Gypsy's teeth deteriorate, most of them having to be extracted. Several surgeries were performed on Gypsy, and she had numerous emergency room visits with minor ailments. It seemed like every time she visited the ER, a new medication was prescribed, a new diagnosis was given, and each prescription had side effects that led to more prescriptions and more side effects with a false diagnosis. In August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina devastated the area Gypsy and Dee Dee were living. They lost their apartment and left for shelter in Covington, which was set up for individuals with special needs. Lucky enough for Dee Dee, all of Gypsy's medical records and original birth certificate were destroyed in the hurricane, as well as documents regarding Dee Dee's real name. She had altered her name over the years slightly since being accused of killing her own mother and poisoning her stepmother. A doctor on site at the shelter recommended Gypsy be relocated back to her native state of Missouri, and they were airlifted just the following month back to Missouri. Once back in Missouri, Dee Dee and Gypsy rented a home in Aurora, a town in the southwestern area of the state. However, in 2008, a foundation called Habitat for Humanity built them a small home with a wheelchair ramp and a hot tub. I don't know if people in Missouri refer to like a jacuzzi tub as a hot tub, but that's all I could see in the pictures. I didn't see like an actual hot tub like in the backyard, but this house was actually really cute. It was painted um, like a pale pink, baby pink, and it looked like a little dollhouse. Now, Working as a realtor, um, Habitat for Humanity is a non-profit, non-governmental um, program where the community and people come together and they chip in and they build this house for certain individuals that qualify. 
the story of a single mother with a disabled child forced to flee their home, devastated by the hurricane, received lots of media attention. The community often pitched in to help the woman who has now changed her name from Claudine to Claudinia, but was also known as Dee Dee. And yes, I am just as sick of saying Dee Dee as you are probably hearing it. The overwhelming charitable outpour they received, along with occasional stays at the Ronald McDonald House during medical appointments. They received free flights to see doctors, free trips to Walt Disney World, backstage passes to see Miranda Lambert, and I'll have a picture of Miranda with um, Gypsy on my Instagram which was part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, all while Blankard continued to make monthly child support payments of $1,200 and sending Gypsy gifts. At this point, Rod had only occasional phone calls with Gypsy. During one call on Gypsy's 18th birthday, Dee Dee told Rod not to mention her real age, since she was successful at tricking Gypsy into believing she was only 14 years old. I've tried to, like, wrap my brain around why you would want your child to believe that they were younger than they really are, but I don't know why it just all of a sudden hit me. But duh, 18, she could just up and walk out, I guess. Rod, along with his new wife, had hoped to visit Springfield for a visit with Gypsy, but they were always steered away by a variety of reasons and Dee Dee's ever-so-changing plans. To the rest of the world and neighbors, Dee Dee told them that Gypsy's dad was an abusive drug addict alcoholic who never came to terms with his daughter's health issues and never sent them any money or support. Now, I am going to play devil's advocate here. I don't want to let Rod, Gypsy's dad, off the hook that easy. Um, at this point, like they were just speaking over the phone and he knew that, you know, she had all of these supposed health issues, and even in his own words, he thought that they were extreme. He didn't believe Dee Dee, so why weren't you involved more? Like, why didn't you push more to be involved in your daughter's life or to get to the bottom of it? Um, maybe show up to a doctor's visit once in a while? I don't know. That's just me, though. Don't just say that, you know, Dee Dee changed her plans and that's why you weren't involved in your daughter's life, her entire life. That child is half yours. Show up, go get custody. I don't know, like do something. Don't just sit back and watch this happen to your daughter. Gypsy, on the other hand, was very easily loved by everyone she met. Her small frame stood five feet tall. She was nearly toothless. She wore big, large, thick glasses and had a very high-pitched, almost childlike voice. She looked to fit the part her mother created for her. She appeared to be very ill. Gypsy often wore hats or wigs to cover her baldness. Dee Dee often shaved Gypsy's head to mimic the hairless appearance of a chemotherapy patient. She told Gypsy her medication would make her hair fall out eventually and would be better to shave it off first. When the two left the house, Dee Dee always brought along an oxygen tank for Gypsy. She even had a permanent feeding tube inserted surgically to feed Gypsy after telling the doctor she could not eat. Gypsy kept a small frame and a sickly stature by being fed only children's liquid nutrition supplement drinks like Pediasure. 
In order for Dee Dee to control Gypsy in every aspect, she used physical and verbal abuse. She would hold Gypsy's hand in public. If Gypsy would say something suggesting she wasn't really sick or acted above her purported mental capabilities, Gypsy recalls her mother squeezing her hand very tightly, and when the two were home alone, she would strike Gypsy with her open hand or with a coat hanger. The medical visits continued. Dee Dee had Gypsy's saliva glands treated with Botox, then extracted altogether to control her drooling. Gypsy later claimed that her mother had induced this by using topical anesthetic to numb her gums before doctor visits. The lack of salivary glands and side effects from the medications, the majority of her teeth were extracted and replaced by a bridge. Tubes were even implanted in her ears to control her, quote, chronic ear infections, end quote. Suspicion did set in with a pediatric neurologist, Bernardo Flasterstein. He seen Gypsy in Springfield and became suspicious of her muscular dystrophy diagnosis. He then started ordering MRIs and a blood test that came back with no abnormalities. Quote, I don't see any reason why she doesn't walk, end quote. Um, because he had seen Gypsy stand supporting her own weight before, so Bernardo made note of that and contacted Gypsy's doctor in New Orleans, and he was shocked to find out that Gypsy's original muscular biopsy had come back negative, which undermined what Dee Dee self-reported. Dee Dee claimed that all of Gypsy's medical records and original diagnosis was lost in the hurricane. This is when the pediatrician made a note that he suspected Dee Dee suffered from the possibility of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a mental health problem in which a caregiver makes up or causes an illness or injury in a person under his or her care, such as a child, an elderly adult, or a person who has a disability. Because vulnerable people are the victims, MSBP is a form of child abuse or elder abuse. Some way and somehow, Dee Dee was able to gain access to Bernardo's notes and subsequently stopped taking Gypsy to see him, which only to me is even more suspicious. I think that if you're going to multiple doctors and just getting what you can and stopping seeing them when they disagree with you, I think that that is just a huge red flag, which further angers me leading into this next piece of information that Dr. Flasterstein didn't follow up by reporting DD to social services. He said that he doubted that the authorities would believe him anyways. Leave that up to the authorities. Just report it. You are a mandated reporter. In 2009, an anonymous caller told police about Dee Dee's use of different names and birth dates for her and her daughter and suggested Gypsy was in better health than it claimed. A wellness check was made, but officers accepted Dee Dee's explanation of making it difficult to be tracked down by her abusive ex-husband, hence all the name changes, I guess. But it's not really like she altered her name drastically, like a completely different alias. She altered it from Claudine to Claudinia. Like, if you were really trying to hide from a drug addict ex-husband, you would think that you would just completely change your whole name and not keep the same last name as your ex-husband. 
but they bought it, and to the eye, Gypsy seemed and looked genuinely handicapped, so officers closed the file. Dee Dee was said to have forged at least one birth certificate of her daughter's, moving her birth year from 1991 to 1995. Gypsy claims later she was unsure of her age for 15 years, and every time she would question it, her mother would say that um, it was a misprint on her birth certificate, yada yada yada. Gypsy had tried to escape her mother on one occasion. She attended a science fiction fantasy convention in 2011. She was in a costume and attempted her escape, but her mother found her in a hotel room with a man she had met online. Dee Dee presented the forged birth certificate to the man that stated that she was 14 instead of 18 and threatened him that she would turn him into the police. Dee Dee smashed Gypsy's computer with a hammer and threatened her fingers would be next if she ever tried to escape again. She kept Gypsy on a leash and handcuffed to the bed for two weeks with bells on the doors. Dee Dee told Gypsy she had filed paperwork with the police that Gypsy was mentally incompetent, leading Gypsy to believe that if she attempted to go to the police for help, they just would not believe her. In 2012, Gypsy continued to use the internet after her mother had gone to bed. This is when she met Nicholas Godjohn, a man around her age from Big Bend, Wisconsin. They met on a Christian singles chat room. Nicholas had a list of issues himself, including a criminal record, mental illness, even dissociative identity disorder or autism. The two became internet pen pals and stayed in touch because two years passed and in 2014, Gypsy confided in a 23-year-old neighbor, her name was Aaliyah Woodmany, whom Gypsy considered a big sister and been known to both of them that Gypsy was actually the same age as Aaliyah. She told this neighbor of her plans with Nicholas to elope and that they have chosen names for potential children. The pen pal relationship grew from flirting to BDSM elements. Sexually explicit text messages were exchanged. Aaliyah, the sister-like neighbor, tried to talk Gypsy out of this relationship in fear that she was being groomed by an online sexual predator. The following year, Gypsy planned to meet Nicholas in person for the first time. She paid for his travel and lodging by stealing and mailing $800 in cash to Nicholas. The plan was to meet or bump into each other at a movie theater that Gypsy and Dee Dee would be attending. They would strike up a relationship and she would introduce Nicholas to her mother. Well, they did meet and they did meet at this movie theater, even meeting in the men's bathroom stall for sex. Dee Dee, of course, did not accept Nicholas, even as a friend. She made it very clear Gypsy would not be able to date or have any kind of relationship with the opposite sex as long as she could control it. In order for Gypsy and Nicholas to be together, they needed a plan. Maybe a planned pregnancy. Then Dee Dee would be forced to accept Nicholas into Gypsy's life. But that wasn't enough. They needed to get rid of Dee Dee. What about murder. Nicholas returned to Springfield in June of 2015, arriving while Gypsy and Dee Dee were away at a doctor's appointment. Once back home and Dee Dee was asleep, Nicholas made his way to the Blackguard home. Gypsy leaves the front door unlocked with pre-cut strips of duct tape, 
gloves, and a knife. Gypsy makes her way to the bathroom, shuts the door behind her, covers her ears so she can't hear her mother's screams. Nicholas makes his way down the hall to Dee Dee's bedroom, where she's lying face down, asleep. He starts stabbing her repeatedly in the back. She screams out for Gypsy. Then everything goes silent. Oddly enough, Gypsy and Nicholas had sex in Gypsy's bed once Dee Dee was dead, before taking $4,000 in cash and fleeing to a motel outside of Springfield. They then mailed the murder weapon back to Nicholas's home in Wisconsin so they wouldn't be caught with it while they were taking the bus back. Several witnesses recall seeing the pair headed to the Greyhound station. Gypsy was wearing a blonde wig and was walking unassisted. Friends of Dee Dee's got worried after seeing a strange post on Dee Dee's Facebook page, something along the lines of the bitch is dead. When the phone calls went unanswered, several of them, as well as neighbors, went to the house. Dee Dee and Gypsy were known to be gone on medical trips unannounced, but Dee Dee's Nissan Cube, which was modified to hold Gypsy's wheelchair, was still in the driveway. Protective film covered the windows, making it difficult to peer inside, and no one was answering the door, so 911 was contacted. While police were waiting on a search warrant, they allowed one neighbor to climb through a window. Once inside, he spotted Gypsy's wheelchair still in the house. The warrant was issued, and police entered the home to find Dee Dee's dead body, and no sign of Gypsy. A responding officer noted that the house was a wreck. It was cluttered with so much stuff. Nothing was clean and organized. But there was a hall closet with a padlock on the outside that was so neatly organized and clean. It was a closet top to bottom of medications, neatly labeled. It was Dee Dee's own personal pharmacy. I thought that that was an interesting piece of info to give. A GoFundMe page was instantly set up to help raise funds for a funeral, maybe even two. They still had not located Gypsy. Was she kidnapped? Was she alive? After all, her wheelchair, oxygen, and feeding tube were all left behind. Among the chaos outside of the Blackard home, the neighbor Gypsy confided in, Aaliyah, told police of the man Gypsy had met online and their plans to run away together. She showed the police some printouts of conversations Gypsy had secretly saved and printed that included Nicholas's name. Based on that information, police asked Facebook to trace the IP address from which that strange post had been made on Dee Dee's account. It turned out to be in Wisconsin. The following day, Nicholas's home was raided in Wisconsin. The two surrendered and were taken into custody formally charged with murder and felony armed criminal action. As you can imagine, when the news broke back home, everyone was glad to hear that Gypsy was safe, but confused how this frail, ill child could be accused of murdering her mother, her caregiver. The two were extradited back to Springfield and held on $1 million bonds each. Green County Sheriff Jim Arndt warned the media with a statement, quote, Things are not always as they appear, end quote. The media then broke the news and truth of Gypsy's real life. She had never been sick. She could walk. She was actually four years older than believed to have been. Sheriff Arndt urged people not to donate any money to the family until the investigation learned the extent of the fraud that had been taking place. 
you can watch and listen to the trials of Gypsy and Nicholas on YouTube. Gypsy takes the stand and testifies, and I think that it is actually very interesting to hear her side of the story. There have been multiple documentaries and interviews with Gypsy Rose while incarcerated, Dr. Phil um, as an example. So to save you the long details of the trial, I will just brief it up with Gypsy accepted a plea deal in July of 2015 and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Nicholas was found guilty of a first-degree murder and armed criminal action. In February of 2019, he was sentenced to life in prison. The death penalty was declined in this case. Dee Dee's family back home in Louisiana had confronted her for years about Gypsy's treatment, and they mentioned they do not regret her death. Quote, Dee Dee deserved her fate and Gypsy had been punished as much as she needed to be, end quote. None of the family would pay for her funeral or even go pick up her ashes. Unfortunately, her ashes were flushed down the toilet by her own father and stepmother. Here is a little quote from Gypsy herself about her life now behind bars. I feel like I'm free in prison than living with my mom because now I'm allowed to just live like a normal woman. Gypsy is eligible for parole in 2024. She could get out sooner. There are numerous petitions swirling to release her early. Life outside of her mother's prison and actual prison walls are going to be very difficult for Gypsy. She has never been able to make a single decision on her own. She has never been able to fully see the world, experience the world. So I hope that she takes the second chance at life to fully experience that. I am a little torn on this one. I do have the popular opinion that um, Gypsy was abused and manipulated and lied to her entire life, and she lost a precious childhood and young adult life. I can't imagine the psychological toll of this amount of abuse would do to someone. Gypsy, knowing that she could walk and even secretly walking, while her mother wasn't around and then being caught and beaten by a hanger. I wonder if Gypsy ever thought of just standing up and walking in public or at a doctor's visit or when the police came for a wellness check. I wonder if there was any alternative way this could have gone that didn't include murder or losing more of her life behind bars because she's now paying consequences for this crime. I do believe Gypsy had no form of relationship with anyone from the outside world, and she craved the attention and affection from anyone and everyone. I think Nicholas, as mentally unstable as he was, took advantage of her. It was apparent to me in the sexually explicit texts. This wasn't like two children, pen pals, talking about innocent sexual contact. This was explicit and disturbing even having sex in the room down the hall where your dead mother lays. So I see both ends of the spectrum. I see how Nicholas was the one who actually committed the murder. I think I straddle the fence with this one. Let me know what you guys think. I thought I was Team Gypsy before covering this episode, but now after logically thinking it through without pulling on my emotions, I think I have to agree that she's behind bars where she belongs, at least for now. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode freaks. Hope you enjoyed. This was less 
of an emotional roller coaster as my previous three episodes have been. If you like this episode and like my show, kindly do me a solid and hit that share button. Share where you can and to who you can. I love all my old and new listeners. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, leave me a rating and a review. They really help my show grow. Go check out Missing at 5280. Tell her a pocket full of crime sent you. Thank you for suggesting this week's episode, Maddie Madison Hobag. She is my very best friend, more like a sister. She's my number one fan, listens to every episode, anxiously harasses me when my uploads aren't like right away at 6 a.m. on Wednesdays. So a much deserved shout out for my biggest fan. Love you so, so much. Until next time, stay weird, my friends. Oh. And one more thing, wash your hands. Hi, mom.